We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Oh, hello again. We are here because it's a dark and scary and murdery world. It is. It is. You can't trust anyone. Even in the Midwest. Especially in the Midwest. And people seem to want to hear about it, which um, makes me happy, Don. I love it. Yeah. It's we, exciting. We appreciate you, our listeners. We really, really do. Yeah, it's super cool. Thank you. So what are people saying about Midwest murder these days? Well, it's super cool. Some awesome, fabulous, good, lovely things. Uh, R. Hofer, 1978-0108-2021. He wrote, well, I'm assuming it's a he. Presumably. I, I'm pretty sure it's a he. Anyway, thank you. Uh, can't wait for the next episode. Having lived in the Midwest all my life, I have memories of the crimes discussed on Midwest murder. It is very interesting learning the details left out of the crimes reported at the time. Thank you for telling the story of these crimes in a very informative and respectful way. Thank you. That's that's super cool. We appreciate you, Mr. Hofer. And uh, also, West's Best, 112 of 21. True crime with true compassion. I love this podcast for so many reasons, but one that stands out is the humanity and tenderness that Don and Jonah bring to the show when discussing the gruesome details surrounding these cases. The hosts have wonderful chemistry, are master conversationalists, and it's always apparent that they've done their homework researching and interviewing people related to the cases they're discussing. Holy crap. The holy crap's mine. That's not hers. Theirs. His. I don't know. Uh, Thank you. And it's, for me, it's so cool um, uh, to, to hear that we are um, being combat- compassionate, respectful. That's like my number one um, concern is that we we are treating these cases with the respect um, that they deserve. So thank you. That means that means a lot. It's an emotional process researching mm-hmm. these murders, and to some degree, it it, it does. Uh, they they stay with you on some level and and so thank you thank you to everybody who takes the time to review us it really helps the show and and please find us midwest murder wherever podcast can be found take a minute drop us that review and rating on itunes and you might just hear your name or your review called out here on the show we appreciate you guys big thanks to nomad design house for sponsoring this episode of midwest murder if you need any graphic design work logos or other general related um needs Reach out to Nomad Design House. They're on Facebook, and they do they do excellent work. If uh, you know, n- no bias here, but the Midwest Murder logo, Alex killed it. We love it. Yeah, we love uh, it. Also, special thanks to CJ Wynn for her help in writing the intro. You can catch her book Wilder Intentions on Amazon, and to Eric Michael Anderson for our spooky and uh, wonderful intro music. Today we are going to be hanging out around. 
2011, but it's like January 2011, so 2010, 2011, and what's happening around the world at around this time? There's some pretty significant developments throughout this period. Representative uh, Gabriel Gabrielle Giffords was among 17 people shot in an assassination attempt in Arizona, uh, right outside of a grocery store. I feel like that's that's a story that's quick was easily forgotten and swept under the rug here ten, 10 years later do you even think, remember it oh gosh yeah okay. i do i don't think it was swept under the rug i think just okay. so much crazy just, shit has happened that, yeah you're right um that yeah no uh gabby giffords she's she's made her husband mark he was it's, an astronaut yes uh, what a and, story. and he's also a senator so anyway yes uh british petroleum's deep water horizon the uh of course if you if you remember the mark Wahlberg movie i think it was the deep water horizon explodes uh, the offshore platform on April 20th, 2010, killing 11 workers. The oil leak would not be capped until July 15th. Time Magazine announces Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is the 2010 person of the year. Interesting, 10 years later, I feel like people are making him out to be a supervillain. Yeah. Yet there, there he was. Yeah, he's uh, Le- also an alien. Yeah, Lex right. Luthor, something mm-hmm. like that. The Affordable Care Act passes Congress. Changing the face of healthcare, uh, and of course, signed into law by Obama. And here, here's one that makes me, um, I don't know if I feel old or young by this one, but the first iPad is released on April 3rd, 2010. That's, that's insane. As I'm looking at my iPad right now, that's <laughs> right. That's the really, iPad really one, right. well, yeah, yeah, the iPad yeah. one and eight on April 3rd, 2010. It, well, it just feels like we've had them forever now. And, and I guess 10 yeah. years ago doesn't sound, um, as long ago as it is, but it's no, a but decade. It seems, so. it, seems a, it seems like a lifetime. I mean, you know, our generation, you and I, Jonah, we, uh, you know, we were, we remember life before technology Tape decks and stuff. Right? Yeah. But so this is crazy. It feels like we've always had it. December 8th, uh, the second launch of the SpaceX Dragon. This is significant. It's the first ever privately held company, company to launch in orbit and recover a spacecraft. And now here we are today. I, I just saw the announcement. There, there, there's like five people, four or five people who paid $50 million each to get a ride up to the space station. They're now flying on the, uh, it's a, c- considered a commercial flight by SpaceX here today. So again, yeah. not trying to mix the, blend the timelines and confuse anybody, but it's, it's it's just seeing years how later, f- this is where we've come. This yeah. is where we come. I, um, I have so, I'm really trying not to be judgy, but I have so much judgment. You have $50 million to pay for this. Like what, what are yeah. you doing? You're, you're flying to space. I'd love to take that trip. I mean, it would be Maybe. a super cool I don't know. trip, space but seems for scary. 50 million Space seems really scary. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the underwater earthquake with a magnitude of 9.0 hits off the coast of Japan, causing the tsunami and disaster of Fukushima. Oh, in May 2011, the Navy SEALs captured and, and killed the most the U.S. U.S.'s most wanted terrorist, Osama bin Laden. And very significant, the Occupy Wall Street movement begins on September 17th of 2011, donning the "We Are 99% slogan referring to income inequality. Wow. Wild. So a, wi- a pretty wild series wild of here. events is happening around the United States and globally. Hmm. But we're settling in on January 28th, 2011 in Minot, North Dakota. It's 3 a.m. in Jefferson Trailer Court. The world is dark, frozen, and quiet. Jefferson Mobile Home Park is a neighborhood of over 240 mobile homes, many of them old and worn down. It's not exactly a prosperous neighborhood. Some members of the community might even suggest it's a little sketchy. Nevertheless, The people who live here are engaged in the honest struggle to make a living, working really hard for the little they do have. 
many of them hoping to make it to the next level. Trailer 24, row B, is the home of Jolene Zephyr, who lives with her boyfriend Jeremy Longy and son Dylan. Jolene is a hardworking middle-aged woman with two jobs, doing everything she can to pay the rent, put food on the table, and care for her family. On this icy January night, Jolene, Jeremy, and Dylan are all fast asleep in their beds, tucked under warm blankets against the cold winter air. Unbeknownst to our sleeping family, an angry, desperate, malicious man is driving across the bleak and empty prairie of North Dakota with wicked intent. It's not long after 2 a.m. when Omar Calmio, driving from his worksite in the Bakken, creeps his way toward the sleeping family. The long drive from Williston only fuels the murderous rage that's been building in him for months. He approaches the little trailer at B-24 Jefferson. No lights are on, but it doesn't matter to Calmio. He knows this house. He's lived in this house. He slips into the home unnoticed. 13-year-old Dylan is asleep on a makeshift bed in the living room, less than a foot and a half from the front door. Calmio sees Dylan on the bed, pulls out a 9mm pistol, and executes Dylan where he sleeps. The the point-blank shot enters the side of Dylan's head, exiting just above his ear, bruising and tearing flesh on its way out, sending blood and brain matter across Dylan's pillow. Mm. Dang. Yeah. A 9mm gunshot inside a mobile home would be a thunderous, roaring noise that would presumably, Don, wake up even the most sound of sleepers. Strangely, the gunshot wakes neither Jolene nor Jeremy. Calmio deftly makes his way through the cramped and cluttered home. It's tiny. There's laundry stacked up in the hallways. A mattress is leaning against the wall. The living room is stuffed with a table, a fish tank, a couch, a love seat. Mess piles are spread throughout the living space. There's an ashtray overflowing with cigarette butts. In spite of all these obstacles and obstructions, the killer moves with predatory ease and purpose into the back bedroom where Jolene and Jeremy are fast asleep. With cold, calculated precision, Calmio stalks into the room and shoots Jeremy Longy right through the top of the skull, the bullet lodging in the muscles of Jeremy's neck. Omar turns ruthlessly to Jolene and fires his weapon into the back of her head. The bullet passes through her brain, lodging just above her eye, fracturing the orbital structure of her face. In a matter of mere minutes, three people are executed, victims of a dark-hearted killer. The only witness to these vicious killings is a family dog who Calmio casually shoots on the way out. Holy hell. It, it, it is an explosion of of rage terror, and terror. Everything. They never had a chance. No, there, there 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 are no signs whatsoever of a struggle in 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 this. Oh my gosh! Premises. Holy cats! Whew. The next morning, Minot wakes up. Adults go to work. Kids go to school. But when Jolene doesn't show up for her job at the ground round, managers there are worried and try to reach her by phone. At the same time, school officials are trying to reach Jolene because Dylan hasn't shown up for school. Unable to reach Jolene, work and school both reach out to her daughter, Terry Zephyr. By now it's nearly lunchtime, and very worried, Terry calls Jolene's neighbor, Diane Anderson, who she regularly had coffee with before work. 
and asks her to check on Jolene. Oh, and what a horrific sight she's about to find. Oh my gosh. Diane goes to Jolene's trailer around 1 p.m., sees the front door open. Quote, Well, I just looked and then I saw Dylan lying there on the floor on the mattress. He looked like he was sleeping, but he had blood coming out of his mouth. Then I hollered for Joe. I hollered, but no answer. I went to the back house and I went to the back of the house and I peeked around her bedroom door and I could see there was two people lying in bed. They were all covered up. I turned around and I went home and I called 911 because I didn't have my phone with me. Minot Police Department officer Shannon Lackey is the first on scene. And she's a she's a seasoned she's a seasoned officer. She handles it well. Once once inside, uh, she discovers Dylan's lifeless body. Blood and brain matter coming from his nose. Shannon and a partnering officer clear the kitchen in the living room, and they quickly realize they a, a detective is needed on scene. The dog that was shot actually wouldn't let them into the back area. It was still alive oh. and, and running around and bleeding all over the no. crime scene. No, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they, so they, they call for backup. They call animal control. We were able to interview Detective Dave Goodman, who was Minot PD's lead investigator on this case. Here's a clip from that interview. I want to talk about the Jefferson crime scene just a little bit. And so reports indicate the home was very cluttered. There were three people killed inside of the trailer home with a nine millimeter pistol. Now the sound of that gunshot would presumably wake up the neighborhood. But in the trailer, there was no signs of struggle. We know the murder weapon was never found. But this sounds to me like a suppressor was used on the gun. I understand there's no evidence to to show there was a suppressor. You guys do not have that weapon. I am curious, do you have any theories on how that murder happened in the trailer house? We always suspected that there was uh, some sort of suppressor used. Um, We talked to a bunch of the neighbors and nobody, like you say, nobody heard anything. Um, We we suspected at one time or entertained the idea that uh, there could have been two shooters, but the evidence did not support that. The evidence supported just one shooter. And looking at the home, is it fair to conclude a shooter navigating that home perhaps could have would have been familiar with the area so as to not create any any more mess to knock anything over yes uh, there was uh, items that would be in the way that the the shooter would have had to step over um, there were dogs in the residence that we felt the shooter must have been familiar with um, there was one dog that that was retaliated against uh, during that incident. Uh, we, we knew uh, or eventually came to learn that our suspect did have issues with that dog. So it kind of made sense to us that uh, uh, why that animal was shot and the other animal wasn't. And given the belief there was a suppressor used on the weapon, does, it, does that also then makes sense there was no evident struggle in the home. Do you believe the two the two who lost their lives in the back of the trailer 
did not know murder was coming upon them. I strongly believe that. Yes. It, uh, the way they were found, um, it appears, uh, and we, we all agree on it, uh, that they seemed to be sleeping and had no idea that, uh, this even occurred or that there was anything going on in inside the trailer. Upon exiting the house, they're approached by three women. One of the women is nearly hysterical. It's Terry Zephyr, who tells Officer Lackey this is her mother's residence. And she has just found out that her sister, Sabrina, has been killed. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. It's bone chilling. I... Mm-hmm. Happening almost simultaneously across town on South Main Street, Elizabeth Lambert is coming home to the apartment she shares with Sabrina Zephyr. The two have been roommates for about a month and are very close. In fact, the night of January 27th is the only night since they've lived together that Elizabeth hasn't stayed at the apartment with Sabrina. On January 28th, having spent the night babysitting for a friend, she runs errands in the afternoon with her friend, Odd Osterus. When she returns to the apartment she shares with Sabrina, she finds it locked. Assuming Sabrina's inside, she knocks, but nobody answers. And she doesn't have a key to the apartment. In fact, nobody has a key to the apartment, except Sabrina's boyfriend. So Elizabeth jimmies the lock open with her ID, as she would later testify, quote, I walked through the living room, and I walked through the kitchen, And then I walked towards the bedroom, and then I seen the light on, but there was no blankets or nothing in the bed, so I was going to turn around. So I just thought she probably left somewhere in a hurry or something, I don't know. But when I turned around, I seen her feet. She was laying on the floor by her bed. She was holding her face, and i just seen a lot of blood. And all I could remember is thinking what she said. And I tried. Sabrina, get up. Then I even touched her. And that's when I knew. I, my, I can't I'm, imagine I'm, finding one of my friends like that. Well, and then finding your friend. I, I, I don't want then, to imagine it. Finding your friend, finding, uh, being the neighbor, finding, you know, a child, and your and your it's, friend. I, I mean, uh, my uh, my little intuition would tell me that they're related. Elizabeth calls nine one one and reports to dispatch that her friend is quote down and bloody. In a panic, she then calls Odd, who had just dropped her off. He's not far and arrives back on scene before Minot PD. Odd enters the apartment, sees Sabrina's body, and calls 911. The 911 operator, quote, wanted to direct me in performance of CPR, so I was on my knees next to Sabrina. I remember touching her arm and that her skin was cold. The 911 operator told me that I needed to turn her on her back. When I attempted to move her, I could feel that the body was stiff. Following the directions of the operator, I listened for breath, tried for a pulse, and found nothing. Even had he known how to perform CPR, it wouldn't have mattered. Sabrina had been shot in the face from a range so close, powder burns marred her face. The bullet went through her face, into her neck, and went through the jugular, and then and then went down into the muscles of her back and exited over the right shoulder blade on the left side of the back. A second shot 
directly to the back of the head, coming out right above the eyebrow in front of the head on the right side and going through the brain was lethal in a matter of seconds. Oh my gosh. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of anger. It's just shooting somebody in the face. I mean, that's holy smokes. The first on scene is Minot PD officer, Dan Wheeler quote. I was familiar with the building. I'd been there prior. So I knew where the apartment was. I went down the hallway of the apartment to the bedroom, the second bedroom on the right. And I saw the young lady laying between a dresser and the bed was unresponsive. I saw a large pool of blood underneath her head. I could tell that she had been in that position for some time that rigor mortis had actually set in. So I attempted to feel for a pulse, but no pulse. He secures the crime scene and radios for a detective. But why was Officer Wheeler familiar with Sabrina's apartment? Yeah, why had he been there before? He was familiar with, familiar with it because he had previously responded to a call from the apartment over a domestic dispute between Sabrina Zephyr and her boyfriend, Omar Calmio, mm. who is also the father of Sabrina's baby. Wow. A four-month-old baby who was found on that cold January afternoon in the second bedroom of the apartment. Alive. Oh, thank goodness. Playfully bouncing in a baby jumper. Thank goodness uh, the baby is alive. Uh, I can only imagine the trauma. You know, I mean, five that, about, about about five months old, infant, and, and most likely in in soiled. In, in, I mean, but she's alive. He, she, sorry. What's the um the baby? Uh, the baby. Yeah. The, yeah. The, yeah uh, the the baby's alive, thankfully, yeah. and is is found in uh, the other room. Ugh. So, who is Omar Calmio? Well, not a good guy, clearly. Omar Calmio is a Somali refugee, one of a wave of Somali refugees who come to the United States beginning in the 90s. By the end, uh, and I just want to explore this a little bit because it, it plays a role in this story. By the end of the 20th century, the East African nation of Somalia was in tatters. A long and brutal colonial past led to a declaration of independence in 1960, but functional statehood was thwarted time and time again. In 1969, the Prime Minister of Somalia was assassinated and a military coup d'etat followed in which the military and the state police dissolved Parliament and the Supreme Court and suspended the Constitution. Decades of military dictatorship caused decades of civil unrest and by the 90s, Somalia was declared a failed state. Civil war and genocide, complicated by drought and famine, gripped the country for more than a decade. And by the 2000s, there were a flood of refugees from Somalia seeking political asylum all over the world. Oh, man, how traumatic. It, it, it's, it, it's a rough place. Yeah, for sure. You, you, yeah. have, you have lost the global lottery right. b- by being born into that kind of landscape. Yeah. It, 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 it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a veritable hellscape in many ways. Between eight, 1983 and 2004, over 55,000 Somali refugees resettled in the United States. A large number of those Somali refugees settled in Minnesota. Minnesota harbors the largest population of Somalis in America. And it's in Minneapolis where Omar Calmio first shows up on our radar. Now, the timeline 
is messy on Calmio's life, and we don't know exactly when he arrives in Minneapolis, but we do know that he was convicted in 2006 of second-degree assault with a dangerous weapon. He and a group of other Somali men attacked a man in Minneapolis in January 2006, and Calmio stabbed him three times in the back with a knife. Calmio serves about a year in prison, and he's released in January 2007. And again, the timeline is messy. We don't know exactly when he arrives in North Dakota, but we do know sometime in 2008, he begins as a, as a student at Job Corps in Minot. We also know that prior to 2008, Calmio has a child with Kenzie Goodhouse. And by the time he's living in Minot, they're in a custody battle. At one point, he steals the baby from Kenzie, brings him to Minot for a month, and makes Sabrina take care of the child. Calmio eventually re- returns the child to his mother, and a lengthy custody battle ensues. And that was, and the the child and Kenzie were in Minneapolis. Is that the, correct? the child and Kenzie were in Fargo. Oh, in Fargo. Okay. Yep. That okay. that their their custodial dispute is oh, eventually gotcha. settled in okay. Cass. It, well, it's it's sure. it, no, it's a fair question because I don't think I had that in here, but uh, they it's settled in Cass. Okay. So she's in Fargo, and uh, evidently sure. Calmio would. Uh, make trips back and forth. Right, um, right. Wasn't supposed to take the kid and just one say, he took the kid, called her on his way out of town and said, I'm taking, I'm, I'm taking the baby. Aye, aye, aye. And um, so on first glance, it seems that Job Corps can provide a, a good enough opportunity for Calmio. And jo- for those who don't know, Job Corps is, is the nation's largest career technical training and education program for low income young people ages 16 through 24. Established in 1964, Job Corps serves approximately 60,000 people each year and takes pride in its diverse student population, welcoming all who qualify. Yeah, I think it's a it's a wonderful, uh, amazing program. program. I mean, it's yeah, it was uh, it, it was uh, Lyndon Johnson was the one who kind of I think signed that into. Okay. Yeah, so I know well, I know plenty yeah. of people who it's worked for. Absolutely, I, I think it can be very very successful. Yeah. Unfortunately, his time at Job Corps doesn't seem to help with Calmio's violent, perhaps even predatory nature. He and Sabrina begin dating while they're both students there. But from accounts by many friends and acquaintances, their relationship is troubled almost from the beginning. Calmio and Sabrina start dating sometime in 2008, evidently quite soon upon his arrival in Minot. And Sabrina gets pregnant in late two, sometime in late 2009, early 2010. So their relationship is rather quickly complicated sure. by that. And while none of the people who knew them at Job Corps testify as to the direct cause of Sabrina's and Omar's fighting, it is clearly very serious. Two people who knew Calmio at Job Corps, including his roommate, testify that he talked to them about wanting to get a gun. His roommate also testifies that Calmio once told him that he, quote, wanted to kill that bitch and kill his baby mama, Sabrina. Another acquaintance from Job Corps testifies that Calmio told him he wanted to shoot Sabrina. One Job Corps friend said she saw a gun in the back of Calmio's SUV. This guy is clearly unhinged. I mean, it, clearly. And he, and, and he was and he was working uh, in the oil patch um, periodically, and and there's 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 more. So this this sure. this is a really complicated and, and tumultuous history they had leading to this outburst of violence so the, the violence that seemed to plague their relationship only intensifies when calmio and sabrina move in together by all accounts sabrina was terrified of living alone with calmio time and time again she asks other girls to live in the apartment with her 
One of these roommates, Joyce Tassan, says that Sabrina was, quote, scared to be home alone because Omar might, might go there. She was scared because Omar was abusive to her. Joyce never witnesses Calmio physically abuse Sabrina, but she does say, quote, I seen a couple bruises on her, on her eyes. Joyce says that once Sabrina told her that she wished that Omar would hit her again so she would have something to put him away or to send him back to Africa. Elizabeth Lambert, Sabrina's roommate at the time of her murder, is so afraid for Sabrina's safety, she hardly ever leaves the apartment. She often hears Sabrina and Calmio arguing and fighting and him making threats of killing her and harming her. She once hears Calmio tell Sabrina that, quote, he was going to beat her up and hit her over the head with a bottle and leave her for dead with the garbage. Lambert testifies that at the time of her death, Sabrina and Calmio were fighting constantly about custody of their child and about who would claim the baby on their income taxes. In fact, several people know about this tax dispute. Amy Dufany is Jolene Zephyr's boss at the Ground Round in Minot. Jolene often expresses her concern for her daughter, for Sabrina's safety, and according to Amy, about three or four days prior to the murders, quote, we had a conversation about her filing taxes and how she was scared of Omar finding out she had claimed both Sabrina and the baby. Gloria Carbajal, a very good friend of Jolene Zafir knows about the tax dispute too and says that in the days leading up to the murder, Jolene was terrified. She told me that Omar had been beating her daughter up with a belt buckle. Jolene was terrified for her children. Jolene also tells Gloria that she is afraid that Calmio would come after Jolene and her children and they would be sorry. She was in fear for her life. Jolene tells other friends and family, including Joyce, Diane Anderson, and Terry Zephyr, that she fears Calmio is, quote, going to kill the whole oh family. Oh, my gosh. Ugh. Sadly, many others know about the domestic violence, the physical abuse Sabrina Zephyr suffers at the hands of Omar Calmio, but no one, it seems, can convince Sabrina to flee the situation. Sabrina's aunt, Rochelle Greger testifies that Sabrina calls her and says, Aunt, quote, Auntie, I have something to tell you. Omar's been beating me. She was shaky and scared. I could hear it in her voice. Sabrina sent Rochelle photographs, too. Photographs, she believes, are evidence that Calmio has beaten Sabrina with a belt. I couldn't really make it out, Rochelle says, but I think it was her buttocks. Sabrina said she couldn't hardly walk after that. Oh, my God. About three months before her death, Sabrina also sends photographs to Laura Giberson. These are photos of her face and her backside going to her butt. The side of her face is swollen in a little black and blue. On her backside, there's slash marks that are black and blue and purple. Sabrina tells Laura that Omar was beating her with a belt. Uh, a friend, Natasha Hunsalong, actually witnesses bruises on Sabrina. One was on her left leg by her calf. She had three smaller bruises by her neck, and then one was by her back by her hip. Another time, Sabrina shows Natasha a lump in her head from her hair being pulled out and a bruise in her neck where, uh, on her back where Omar had kicked her. A few months before her death, Sabrina comes to Natasha and says that Omar was being psychotic again, but also that she was done with the bullshit. And she said she wanted to move in with Natasha until she could find a place. Sabrina actually moves a few things into Natasha's place, but Calmio finds out and he comes after Sabrina grabbing her by the arm and dragging her out of the apartment. Natasha tells Sabrina she doesn't have to leave. She even tells Sabrina to just take her child and run away. 
You're the mom, she says. You have a right. Things are so bad in December of 2010, just about one month prior to the murders, that Jolene Zephyr contacts Calmio's probation officer, Carrie Salmon. 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 Jolene brings Sabrina into Salmon's office so that she can see uh, that Sabrina has a, quote, swollen and discolored eye. Sabrina indicates that Omar Calmio gave her the black eye but she will not allow Salman to photograph her. At this point, Salman refers Sabrina to the Domestic Violence Crisis Center in Minot because, and quote, because as law enforcement, I couldn't really go any further. She wouldn't sign a complaint, and I knew that she needed help. She told me she was afraid of Omar, and that was my next resource. Salman also contacts the Minot PD and asks if she could sign a complaint based on what mother and daughter were telling me in the history of domestic violence they had. She was told they wouldn't let her sign a complaint. Obviously because of, I mean, there are laws or rules against Uh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it wasn't like a refusal. It's just the laws don't work that way. Yeah. Um, Salman contacts Calmio and she gave him an intermediate measure for an evaluation at North Central for some possible possible domestic violence counseling. Now, Sabrina does actually follow through on that DVCC recommendation. On December 22nd, a couple days before Christmas, she meets with Ashley Counts at the DVCC office. Sabrina tells Ashley that she had been in in an altercation with her boyfriend previously, maybe the night before. She had a black eye, some bruises, scratches on her back, We discussed possibly calling the police. They also discussed obtaining a protection order. Sabrina wasn't interested in calling the police. She was interested in obtaining a protection order. It was late in the day around 4.30, so it was after hours. They couldn't get the the order done until the next day. So the weekend passed, and she calls Sabrina again to see if she was still interested But Sabrina was worried the protection order would keep her daughter from seeing her father. They discussed... That was not the case. There could still be visitation and all that. Tragically, Sabrina Zafir did not follow through with the protection order, and she never came to DVCC again. You know, and and just with what I can see of this guy, um, he would have walked right through it, Um, but but it's one of the steps that you need to do, and you need to protect yourselves. Like, that's... In... In a separate testimony, Terry Zephyr confirms the visits to Calmio's probation officer and to the DVCC. Terry states that Sabrina was just too scared to press charges on Omar or call law enforcement. She refused to press charges on him because he would have went back to prison. Perhaps the most horrific and wretched testimony of all is Sabrina's own. These may well be the last words Sabrina's all-too-short and all-too-painful life. A Facebook message from her to Terry on January 27th. Hey Terry, I need you to come get me ASAP. Don't call because if Omar knows you are calling me, he will get mad and start hitting me again. My face is fucked up, Terry. Come here. Key the door. But I need you. Please. My face is fucked up and my body. Please. ASAP. When you read this. But if you call, he will start hitting me again. Please just come here. You and my mom. Come. Okay. He's crazy. Oh my God, that is, uh, that's the last message. I, uh, I, I don't even, I can't even pull the words together. You know, I mean, you know, Terry, her sister, right? I mean, it's clearly this, this guy is unhinged. He's got, he's an abuser. He is, it is, it is who he is. 
and he had abused her so much and made her in made her into such a victim that it took her to get to this point to ask for help. You know, she likely knew what was happening or what was going to happen, you know, and I, I mean, kudos to her for reaching out um, because that takes a lot of courage, you know, and, and, and um, the, the, the people who are uh, victims of domestic violence, uh, you know, it's, it's not their fault. They're, they're made to think that it is their fault. And, and, you know, what your abuser is doing is not okay. Um, there are people um, that are there to help you. And, um, you know, we need stronger penalties on domestic violence. We need oh, we more, need, we, we need, need such stronger penalties. We need more on, education on for violence. judges. We need, I, I mean, you know, it's, Ugh. There is, and there, there there should be an easier path that doesn't require so much risk for right. people in, in domestic situations to right. get to safety. And unfortunately, because the penalties are so, they're they're, they're just so lax. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still allowed to do so many things after being a convicted domestic abuser. You can still be a cop. You can still be a firefighter. You can still have a gun. You could be a teacher. Uh, there's 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 many instances where, and there's always an escalation. Like always uh, without intervention with, and. There, there's always an escalation, well, and, and there are. I mean, how many, how many more cases like this do we need to 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 do? People need to go through. Um, there's one for, happening right now. Right, right now so as how, we as we record this. How many more times does this need to happen in order for one people, more time you know, is too many? Exactly, you know, it 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 shouldn't be. And and why why is it not? Um, Handled differently, obviously. I mean, clearly, just by by what you said, you know, law enforcement their their hands are tied. That sucks, you know. And and um, you know, it it need there needs to be this needs to be a part of continuing education. You it, know, it it does, and it's a conversation I've had with police officers. One of the most difficult things that some officers who I've, I've conversed with that they've had to face down is showing up to a domestic right. and seeing a woman and or a kid beaten and uh, an obviously guilty man there who, who, who has done it. You can't just kick his ass. And sometimes you can't even arrest, arrest him, him because okay. Unfortunately, this woman is too scared to press charges. Well, and but no, that 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 shifts a little bit because if there's sometimes probable, it if does. there's probable cause, you know, if there's probable cause, then then law enforcement can intervene, remove him from the house for the uh, night, right? It, uh, they can arrest he's, at that he's point. He's home tomorrow. You know exactly. There are certain so when he or she because yeah, let's face it, she, d- it domestic does happen both ways. It, it, it does. But you know, so if there's probable cause, you know, enough probable cause for arrest, they can see that obviously it was a domestic violence situation. They arrest him. But what, if she refuses, what, yeah. Well, that goes into the state's attorney, and you know when it when the charges come through, and and that doesn't always happen. It doesn't happen like it happens on TV, you know, as far as that goes. But, um, but there there needs to be, um, something different, you know. And and the 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 uh, people who are being abused are it's almost um it's almost brainwashed, you know. They they're the abuser has so much control and power over them. That they believe those awful things. They believe they're not worthy of, of um, 
than what they're getting right now. They believe they deserve it, mm-hmm. and in most situations, I'm not saying you know all of them a blanket statement, but um, but you know abusers, it's a control thing, and damn it, how how many times does this need to happen for the our flawed system to to put a stop to it or to do everything that they possibly can? I, I I could talk about it for hours and, and, you know, I have, I have a few friends and, and colleagues at the um, domestic violence crisis center and um, I can't imagine being in their position and, and seeing this repeatedly and. Um, well, well, and, and uh, to, 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 I don't know, to have to perhaps live with this scenario, knowing this family came through your office, you tried to help them, you encouraged them to do all the things you're supposed to do. Right, right. And, and, and they couldn't find the courage to take that last step. That last, and, that last step. And, yeah. and here they are. Right. Um, right. It's, 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 it's beyond, tra- it's, it's, it's super traumatic. There is another aspect to this that frustrates the community and a lot of law enforcement and, and a lot of people who are about to hear this are probably going to be even more irritated. So the domestic response history is not the only interaction Kelmio had with Minot PD. Approximately a year and a half prior to the murders, uh, Omar Kelmio was arrested for a suspended driver's license. Doesn't seem like a very big deal, um, but it, 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 it leads to... Well, I'll, go, I'll just go into it. So during the arrest, Cal, and, and local PD would come to find out that Calmio would often intentionally mispronounce his names. Calimo, Calmio, he had a few different ways that he would tell people and he would speak with a really heavy accident. Um, so, of course, getting pulled over, you have a suspended license, it's revoked, you get arrested. Um, when you He's brought in. He makes some calls, speaking in a foreign language, and the officer was just curious. Well, that's never heard that language before. What what language are you speaking? Camillo says he sp- speaks he speaks Somalian, and then what well, they ask him was, well, "So are are you are you, are you Somalian?" Says yes, but Camillo says yes, but I grew up in Ethiopia, and then they say, "Oh, interesting. What brought you to the United States?" And then Camillo made like this vague suggestion that he was on some sort of diplomatic mission. And so then the officer's like, wait, so wait, you're, you're saying you're a diplomat. And then, and then Calmio says, no, 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 I'm, I'm a refugee. I came here for political asylum. So then they ask him directly, are you here legally? And he says, yeah, but, and so the officer calls border patrol because of the peculiar responses from Calmio and they ask border patrol if they want to talk to this guy. He's bonding out. They can't hold him for anything. Border patrol gets there before Calmio can, can leave. Now when they get there, Calmio's briefly interviewed border patrol makes a quick phone call and then announces they're taking custody as soon as Minot PD is done with him. So what's, what's going on? You know, what, 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 what is this guy? Why, why does the border patrol want him? Of course, having been convicted of a violent crime in Minnesota, as Mm -hmm. previously discussed, his immigration status was in question. Now, because of the violent crime. Okay. Now, 
And not the, in question, but revoked though, right? Revoked yeah. or, or, or yes, or in jeopardy. The, the best way that I can, I can put it is that it, it, essentially, of course, because Somalia is in a state of chaos, we have accepted political refugees and we have asylum seekers here. And it's very benevolent of us. It's a very great way um, to, to help ailing places of the world. Now, of course, if you come and, here and just because he's seeking political asylum and any refugee that you see does not mean that they're going to commit the same crime no. that Calmio did. So no I, tens of I, thousands I, yes, come over. This is, this is but it's, yeah. it's, the the rule generally is that if you if you come here for any given reason and you violate our rules, we're sending you back to your right. own country. Yep, that's how it is. And yeah, right. and so yeah. he was convicted of that violent crime. We wanted to send him back. And he should have been. And however, he should have been. However, um, the and, and the criminal justice system had gone through all the lawful steps to have him removed from the United States, but couldn't do anything as a country because we can't send him back to Somalia because they don't have a government. So like, like we, it, yeah, and we, we won't send back to, we won't send somebody back to a country without a functioning government that is more or less a war zone. Well, and like you said, there's nowhere, there's no, there's no place to deport him to. No, they can't. No, no, they can't. But it did, it, it did create, in some of these situations, it can create almost like a perpetual cycle of being held on these immigration holds. And they can only, depending on what it's for, you can only hold them for so long. So what happens is these guys get picked up occasionally. Let's say, say every three, six months. Sure. They're supposed to check in. And they check in. They're like, well, can you deport me yet? And they're like, well, we're like, nope. And then we don't deport them. And they're they're allowed to still stay here. But that's... And they know it. They, I mean, and, and, and they know yeah, it. Yeah. And so by the rules, you're supposed to check in with ICE every 30 days. If you don't check in, it's an immigration violation. And then you can be taken before an immigration judge. You cannot hold these people forever. Right. But you can yeah. hold them for a certain time yeah. each time. Hmm. So... It's flawed. It's yep. very, very flawed. So coming coming now, of course, full circle, this is the history of their relationship, a little bit of the history of Omar Calmio. This murder happens on um, January 28th. Calmio is, is obviously very quickly identified as a key suspect. On January 29th, Sergeant David Goodman of Minot PD Investigations Division contacts Omar Calmio. Calmio claims he was at work on standby in the Williston area. He asks Calmio if he's aware Sabrina Zephyr's dead. Says yes. Calmio tells Goodman how their relationship had soured. And during this conversation, Calmio is very matter of very matter of fact, emotionless during the entire interview. Because with he seems like a, a psychopath. So yeah, I, there's no emotion there. They can't well, be. Well, Calmio. I'm making jumps. Yeah, no, I'm, no. Calmio Cal, Cal went to the bar that night, partied, and even managed to hook up with a woman. He was making, in fact, he was making Valentine's Day plans what, with his, uh, his next woman. victim or what? I, who knows? I think it's a good. Goodman confronts Calmio directly, letting him know about the evidence and how he, Goodman, is asserting it's all coming back and pointing at Calmio. Calmio's response: Good luck. Oh, wow. So, Calmio is picked up. On February 4th, for an immigration hold. But he's not actually arrested for the murders until August 3rd. And he's arrested in Grand Forks County Jail almost exactly six months to the day he's initially brought in for the immigration hold. Now, 
It's not clear. I couldn't find why he's being held there. I'm assuming it has something to do with where they detain immigrants. Yeah, it uh, it, it would depend. It um, at the time. Yeah, um, I, I, in, I could not find why. So in 2011, at the time, we were at the the you know the beginning of the boom, right, or at the height of the boom, or kind of towards where it was just complete unmanaged chaos, right? Mm, yeah. And so it was. My assumption would be that um, well, clearly, well, my nut was could, full. But uh, you know, again, to be clear, he's picked up on an immigration hold. Yep. They they don't charge yep. him with murder for right. almost for for the whole six months. Yep. But it just depends on yeah. who had room. Would be my guess. So at that time, Grand Forks probably had more room, and so that's where they that's where they went. You know, it it that would be my. It was probably space. Sure. Um, okay. Would be my assumption. And then there's a lot of curiosity why it took so long for an arrest to be made, and um, uh, as a side note to this this story pretty important in in late may and in, in june actually of 2011 this same year the city of minot floods and mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of people were displaced so there, there was some suggestion on the part of minot law enforcement that that delayed the process sure. of him being I would, arrested i would assume so yeah but i also i saw somewhere that they're only allowed to hold to do the, these holds for like six months at a time sure and his actual murder arrest is like days before that hold sure. would have expired. So they probably had that deadline, and they they knew that. Yep. Holy crap! We've got to yeah, we've got to get this done. So he's he's arrested, um, and there's there's of course there's a there's a two now there's a two year investigation into the murders, and the investigation turns up very little in terms of any majorly incriminating incriminating evidence there's no dna evidence from either crime scene there's no fingerprint evidence from either crime scene there's no witnesses who can directly identify him as a murderer or entering the residences no murder weapon is ever found although ballistics does show that all four people were shot with the same gun but a gun is never found nor tied back to calmio hell they don't even ever have a record of him having purchased ammunition, let alone a gun. Given the paltry amount of physical evidence against their suspect, how confident was Dave Goodman heading into trial? The case, like you say, was was built on a lot of circumstantial evidence, and that was mostly what it was. Um, we worried about uh, getting a conviction. We we had meetings and discussions about how we wanted to charge this out. Did we want to charge um, one victim or did we want to charge the three victims? Um, giving us kind of a safety net just in case more information were to come in down yeah. the road. So Dave, that would mean that if um, basically charging one um, then if that one came back, then it kind of would give a, a, another opportunity to, um, like you said, a, a safety net then for the other three. So it wasn't just one shot and that was it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, um, it was decided that uh, the whole crime itself, including all four victims, is what helped to really uh, paint the picture. Um, so th- that was decided to, or it was decided that it, we would go ahead and, and, and try him on all four murders. Um, but it was, uh, we took some time in doing that. Um, we wanted to make sure that 
we had covered all of our bases. Uh, everybody, uh, it was everybody on board in the very beginning to work the case, but eventually uh, people had to go on to their other cases. Uh, we were dealing with the flood. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the only uh, Minot Police Department employee that did not get assigned to working some sort of flood detail. Uh, the chief at the time and and Captain Olson at the time um, made the decision to keep me on the case, and I worked it along with uh, Agent Dale Meixner of the North Dakota BCI. Meixner comes up a lot in the cases we've researched. Uh, just comments on working with Meixner over the years or on this case? Uh, he's somebody that I really look up to. Um, he's an investigator that has much more experience, especially in 2011, than I did. Um, so it was uh, it was a pleasure to work with him. He has great ideas. Uh, he's great at thinking outside the box, where sometimes us other investigators will get uh, somewhat of t- tunnel vision and and work just within the box. So he would come up with those ideas and different different things that we needed to to look into. So quick question, just following up again on the, you know, you guys took your time, you know, charging and, and wanting to make sure that you did that right. Um, is is that why there was the delay, you know, the immigration hold was was up in August. So is that why kind of kind of playing that out or, or was it kind of part of the case building? Is it just kind of procedure? It, it definitely played a part. Um, he was, uh, we took advantage and I guess I... I think that's the only way to really say that we we did take advantage of the the luxury of being able to have him held on this immigration violation, um, and we uh, we definitely tried to do as much work on the case as we could, and we tried to come up with every idea that we could think of and different things to look into. Agent Meixner and I uh, eventually traveled to Los Angeles and interviewed a a witness. Uh, who was in jail out there, which was one of his former oil field worker co-workers. Um, so we we just wanted to make sure that uh, that we had done everything. We had had meetings with the state's attorney's office uh, along the way, uh, trying to decide at which point uh, everybody was ready to to make the commitment and uh, and to move forward with charging Omar in this this case. In the trial, 140 witnesses were eventually called, and that's a lot. And I imagine you interacted with a majority of them throughout the process. Was there a particular witness or interview that stood out above the rest whose testimony changed things for you or really uh, escalated your feeling that Omar Calmio was your guy? Towards the end, I think it was in October of 2011, uh, and just by chance, uh, the chief of police at that time, Jeff Ballantyne, had been flying out of the Minot Airport on a personal trip, vacation, and he overheard uh, two people discussing this case, and uh, he just kind of listened in, and what he heard was uh, that a friend of theirs a mutual friend of the the two having the conversation uh, 
had information or talked about information about a, a mail carrier that they knew that had seen a white truck that matched the description of the white truck that Omar Kalmoy or Kalmio would have had access to on the night of the murder. Um, he saw that truck in the area of Sabrina's apartment on South Main Street. Uh, so that was that was great information that came in, and uh, we did complete an interview with him, and and he he did indeed give that that information. Well, just by chance, just yeah. Wow. Yes. And I want to clarify, I don't know if we said it during our initial recording, so for anyone listening to Detective Goodman here, the reason he said Calmoy is because Omar would often change the pronunciation of his last name. So sometimes he would say Calmoy or he would say Calmio, and I believe there are even records um, that, that show that. So it's uh, maybe a bit of a trick that he had to deploy to confuse officers and law enforcement and immigration over time. I think it probably was, and he would not only change the pronunciation, but he would also change the spelling, uh, the the end of it, to I-O or O-I. Well, I noticed in some of the early court documents, it's O-I. I think ultimately it's I-O is, is but, but yeah, just, just so people don't jump on you. This guy doesn't even know the murderer he's talking about. Um, I, I want to, I want to cover your ass on that one. Yes. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So they, they just have, I mean, they have circumstantial evidence. Yeah, kind of. What? Yeah. So we, here's what they do have. The state feels they have a very strong and very clear motive. Calmio wanted control over the child he had with Sabrina. Sabrina and her family were preventing him from taking that control. As previously mentioned, we have there are several witnesses who testified. Calmio asked them about buying a gun. There's another witness testifying to see, have, having seen a handgun in Calmio's vehicle. And the state feels they can establish a plausible timeline of when Omar committed the murders sometime between the hours of 2.30 a.m. and 8 a.m. The the state argues hard that it's possible for Calmio to have made the round trip between Williston and Minot on January 28th. He did it numerous times to see his child. Co-workers on the rig site in Williston testify that they last saw Calmio in the rig shack between 12.30 and 1. But no one sees him again in Williston until the next day. Well, I guess it's the same day technically, yeah, around later, 1 p.m. Yeah. later that day. So if he left, even if he left at, say, 1 a.m., he left Williston, if he's driving the exact speed limit, it's 120 miles, Yeah, he's going to be here at 3 a.m. Yeah, which is 2.33 right, a.m., for sure. Which is right in the middle. And and I, so I, I, and I, and I considered this just because of, of where Jefferson is... Um, so, so yes, it's possible for Calmio to have driven to Minot, murdered four people, and returned to Williston. However, over 800 hours of video surveillance from highway video, gas station, sea stores do not provide any conclusive evidence of Calmio making that trip. Oh, wow. Now, Calmio does have access to a white work truck, and there's a witness who recalls seeing a truck with quote, matching characteristics sitting close by Sabrina's apartment in the morning hours Mm -hmm. of January 28th. They also have a jailhouse confession. Gotta love the jailhouse confessions. 
Allegedly, Calmio told Michael Frederick, this is from Frederick's testimony, quote, there were problems with them and he had a hard time dealing with it. And he told me he just got fed up with them, always hounding him for money and other things that it just drove him to where he couldn't handle it anymore. He told me he went to the house and shot them. He told me he shot him at the mobile home. I believe it was over at Mobile Home Park in Jefferson. He told me that it was bothering for him for some time and he was trying to find a way of getting his baby away from his mother. And he tells him he's angry because something about child support and filling, trying to take the baby for income taxes. He wanted to claim the baby for income tax purposes, but the mother wouldn't let him. And he also says that Omar Calmio said there was somebody else involved. Okay, so hold on a second. So if he wanted... Um, if he was trying to find a way to get his baby away from uh, Sabrina, you know, the the, the baby's mother, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, why, so why leave the baby there then? Just throwing it out there. Pick a better story, dipshit. Like, I, I, yeah, I, well, I don't know. How is he going to take the baby with him? He doesn't want to say that he was there. Well. You can't just, you can't just take the, you know, the baby with you if you show up and, and, and kill the baby mama. Right. Well, I and know. And certainly um, not, n- not wanting to share custody. Murder's not the way out no, of that. I feel like that's, uh, that's not the, that's going to come back move. to you. Yeah. And the other, of course, of course, the strong card that the state plays over and over is the long list of witnesses, all of whom take to the stand to tell the long and disturbing history of Calmio's physical abuse of Sabrina Zafir and of his many death threats to her and her family. The state calls almost 140 witnesses, although not all of those to testify about domestic violence and death threats to Sabrina and her family. Um, But evidently, it's enough for the jury who convicts Calmio of quadruple homicide. He is sentenced to life without parole. The state Supreme Court has upheld the conviction against several appeal efforts. Statistics show us abuse escalates, and we do believe that is what happened in this case. However, Calmio still maintains his innocence And given the circumstantial evidence, how certain are you that you got the right guy? I'm very certain that we have the right guy. I'm 100% sure. Um, I have spent hours working the case, thinking about the case, uh, hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours. And uh, that's chilling. Yeah, it's. it's something that we worked hard on. Uh, We tried to. Uh, find other reasons, other people. We uh, just always ended up in a dead end. Uh, everything always came back to Omar. Um, and and we had to ask ourselves, uh, uh, I mean, who else? If it's not Omar, who else? Who else would want this whole family dead? It went in, in two separate locations. Two separate yeah. locations, miles apart. Mm-hmm. Um so it was very deliberate to to end their lives. Yeah, very premeditated, very very deliberate, very personal. Yes, very, and that's 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 pretty pretty evident. My, my final question lies in 
although the corner was it was difficult for the corner to have a precise time of death and and we know these deaths occurred very close after one another thoughts on which location happened first i strongly believe that he he met with sabrina they had their confrontation um he it escalated to the point of where he killed her and that was uh that was when he decided to go full full force and uh finish everybody is omar calmio the closest you've been to evil i i would agree that uh he is pure evil um i i've seen other pure evil people as well but probably just not at at this level i i would have to agree that this is uh s- certainly up there with with the the worst and the most evil person that I've ever dealt with. Now, one thing I wanted to note is during the trial and um, a couple things to note spookily, the trial starts two years to the days of the murder. So the the trial started on January 28th, 2013, two years to the day of the murder. Of course, it, and, and, and it, does not last all that long. The jury did not deliberate um, for an extensively long time to to reach their conclusion. A uh, couple hours, but there's during during the trial, there was a PowerPoint presentation by prosecutor Kelly Dillon, and essentially in Dillon's PowerPoint, she used it to itemize some of the evidence. But it raised a ton of controversy in the eyes of the defense attorney, and he motioned for a mistrial, and it was nearly awarded. So this wow this 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 PowerPoint presentation, it's like a slide sequence on PowerPoint, and it contained cartoon circles of red to indicate blood splatter, and they they. They photoshopped in like a silhouette of an arm with a pistol at roughly a 45 degree angle across oh the slide. So the, the judge, um, of course it's, it's leading. And, and so the judge denies the motion for a mistrial, but did require the prosecutors to alter the slides to remove all images that may in some way lead the jury. Ooh, that was close. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? You know, the Supreme Court. You know, at, at some point of the, um, at some point of the uh, appeals, appeals process. You know, what if they? What if a different judge is appointed or whatever? You know, and and oof, yikes! In, in this, this is a year. I, I think like the prior year, the whole state had like ten murders, and then this, this is, is four. So mm-hmm. that it's not a place that often sees multiple homicides sure. in, in one setting. Right. And then, right. and, and again, there's a, a ton of frustration from law enforcement on this one. Many of whom feel like Calmio never should have been here yeah. at this point in the first place. And that, that leaves a bit of a stench in the air and a lot of frustration on the local and state level with the way that played out. Sure. Uh, again, people. Wow. Yeah. Feeling huh. why, why, why is he here? Yeah. 
So um, sources for this episode, research for this story is predominantly comprised of case files and legal documents in North Dakota public record. Midwest Murder is produced by the Good Talk Network. A special thank you to Dr. Shawnan Tangney for her efforts of research and writing this episode of Midwest Murder. You can catch Dr. T's work on a new season of Myth America, which rotates every other Monday. So if you're a Midwest murderer listener looking for something to fill that void, uh, Myth America, a lot less murdery, but super fun and and, and fascinating dive into uh, American history. It's great stuff. Yeah, it's great. Please yeah. check it out. And and, and if I if I can, sure. oh no, if, oh, I'll say additional your, additional yeah. resources include the Minot Daily News and the Atlantic. If if you are a victim of domestic violence, or if you have your hand in any of it. Don't don't be afraid to reach out. There are sources or resources that um, that can help you. You know whether it be your local domestic violence center, um, law enforcement, uh, even a friend. It just reach out. Don't um, yeah. Don't we, we don't, don't want be here. we don't want you to be here. Yeah. On on this show with us, we really truly I, I mean that. Um, I, I I do I do work every year uh, to to bring awareness to domestic violence with our local dvcc and so this this is this is it's hard to hear this and and to know that this happened and was allowed to happen and uh given the extensive timeline and and for for those of you that are lucky enough to not have to be or not in one of these situations um advocate uh lobby for those um for for domestic violence um changes you know that's it's starts local and that's what that's how we can help it does thank you everybody remember rate review subscribe on itunes it's midwest murder